HavanaDeprived.com is proud to present Top 8 Magic Podcast with Michael J. Flores and Brian David Marshall. Brought to your ears thanks to face2facegames.com. No, so, no, in all seriousness, what what is this? What are we doing? Is this a, what, What's going on right now? This is the Top 8 Magic Podcast. Where's BDM? I think, is it in Amsterdam? Is that where where the world championship thing is? Then how exactly is this a top eight podcast? Um, So one of two things will happen, and when people are listening to this, they'll probably know better than you and I know actually right now. Either this week is just going to be me and you, or it's going to be me and you, and BDM is going to interview LSD, and then we're going to splice them together. One of those two things is going to happen, and I don't know which one. All right, well, you better deliver BDM. If not, you and I are going to have to talk twice as long and twice as much. Um, I, I think people won't hate that. <laughs> All right, so what's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing good. So we haven't done intros yet. Hey, this is uh, the Top 8 Magic <laughs> Podcast without BDM. I'm Michael J. Flores, and I'm joined by the innovator, Patrick Chapin. Hello. Patrick. Yes. You have been innovating a lot of stuff in your life recently. Uh, been, been trying. Um, so two weeks ago, two weeks ago, you innovated not being single anymore. Uh, I haven't been single for a while, but I innovated straight up to marriage. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. So uh, most people didn't get to go to your wedding. So sick burns on them. But it was, I, I got to tell you, it was like among the awesomest. Uh, gatherings of of magicians and and other other uh, worthwhile folk I've ever been to. Did uh, did they uh, when did, when does this go up? Because I'm trying to figure out if I can tell you, like if I can give you any of the spoilers from what we're about to be posting in the near future. Just spoil it, man. All right. Well, if if this comes out early, you guys better not tell anybody. But uh, got kind of a a sick photo op. Actually, we got grabbed everybody together. With pro points, you remember this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I grabbed everybody together with pro points, and uh, um, what was it? Five thousand, uh, five thousand eight hundred, or six thousand eight hundred pro points, or something like that. Yeah. I think six thousand eight hundred pro points, or something. I certainly did not do the math. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, just sixty, uh, sixty misers or whatever. But anyway. Um, yeah, the wedding was pretty fun. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, it was spectacular. You had, I mean, with the exception of Kai Buddha, you had pretty much every every person who's in the conversation for just the greatest players of all time, all in one room, more or less, right? So it was, it was the America centric version. Fair Kenji enough. Kenji, I looked too far away. Um, who we have? Uh, Bob Maher was there. William Baby Huey Jensen. Is this the name drop portion of the show? <laughs> it was your wedding, man. All right. Yeah, Louise, Huey, uh, Bob, Nassif, uh, Ben Stark, um, Kibler, um, all kinds of people. John John Finkel. Oh, yeah. That guy. Just John him. Finkel. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. all right. We're going to do a Q&A with you later, but this is just something I, I had to get out there. Did Tom Martell have to win his pro tour in order to qualify to be an usher at your wedding? 
Because the other ushers were like LSV and Paul Rietzel, so I assume that the, the minimum threshold to be an usher at your wedding was Pro Tour champion. Uh, and, well, there's also Ben Sec. He was like a violinist. It doesn't count. Yeah. Ben is a Grand Prix, uh, has, a, has Grand Prix performance credentials, and uh, also is a, a freaking master on the violin. It was like unbelievable hearing his, uh, his, uh, his performance, but... Yeah, it, well, actually, it's not just a pro tour win. You also need uh, at least 150 pro points. Oh, so it's a double threshold, yeah. Yeah, it used to be 100, but we uh, we had to up the bar this year. You, you were trying real hard to keep Martel out, but he was like, no, I'm going to win a pro tour. I'm going to get my points minimum. Did so successfully. The the the, uh, the groomsman, which is the section that I was in, was uh, very filthy as well. Uh, Patrick Sullivan was a groomsman. And the great John Schuler came out of uh, hiding, literal hiding, to uh, to uh, make an appearance on the actually, mainland. He was actually the guest that traveled the furthest, considering he was uh, in the process of sailing around the world and took a detour uh, to the Caribbean, where he uh, parked his boat for a while and used a series of ground of, of ground transportation, including getting a car that he uh, he actually drove from the southern tip of Florida up to Denver by way of Madison to uh, to attend. Yes, yeah, so pick up BK and uh, Brian Kowal and uh, Adrian Sullivan. So I don't know if you know this, but after your wedding, John continued on in this car that he just picked up in Florida to uh, drive to the northern tip of Alaska, just to say that he did it. You know. Uh, southern tip of Florida. To the... <laughs> um, but it was really just this absolutely spectacular event, and uh, I am so honored to have been a part of it. Well, I'm super happy you were. So, you, married life treating you well is pretty much the same, right? You've been with uh, Amanda for a couple of years yeah. now. Married life's pretty sweet. I mean, like, obviously, um, looking forward to our honeymoon. I kind of, it feels almost like it's kind of like a... The, the stack hasn't com- fully, hasn't completely resolved yet. <laughs> there's like interrupts floating around. <laughs> yeah, there's still there's, there's still a few spells on the stack. You know, still having a Aruba on the stack. You know. So um, we were actually funny you should mention. That. Actually, we were just uh, just yesterday we were uh, trying like we were discussing uh, our honeymoon, where we're going, and we had originally planned on going to Costa Rica, but then had to temporarily delay it because um, I. You know, broke my Patrick Sullivan of all people actually broke my ribs playing basketball at Grand Prix Vegas, and uh, so we're we postponed it temporarily. But then we realized that it's hurricane season in Costa Rica by the time. <laughs> so then we we're like, okay, maybe we go somewhere else. And then we played the game of we have to find somewhere else to go that meets our creden- uh, our criteria of uh, I've never neither of us have ever been there, and it's a tropical paradise. Which is a harder, you know, we talk about a first world problem that you, you know, are having difficulty finding places that meet this criteria. But it's it's actually the sickest how we ended up doing the research. We just started singing Beach Boys songs. <laughs> We're like, wait, like, oh, wait, hold on, we need, we need more places to Google. How do we know what to Google, what to look for? Okay, hold on. Uh, Aruba, Jamaica, you know, like, like, yep. you know, just the whole thing. Like, and we made it all the way through the song and just did uh, a check on all those. And uh, it was actually a pretty useful way. Like, 
half like there were more song there were more tropical paradises that we have not been to listed in that Beach Boys song than either of us could even think of on our own. Well, did you choose one? Uh, I think Aruba is the uh, the top candidate at the moment, but it hasn't been locked in. Although the thing that really blew my mind, you know that you know, you know Kokomo, the song by the Beach Boys. Yeah, of course, I know. Yeah, where do you think Kokomo is? I have no clue. It's not. It wasn't a real place when they wrote the song. Really? Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. There was like a Kokomo. There were several places called Kokomo, but none in the Caribbean. And they were talking about. Uh, they were trying to make it as though there was a trap. There was some Caribbean island off the, you know, off between somewhere between Florida and into the Caribbean called Kokomo. And it was supposed to be this tiny little island that's so exclusive that nobody had ever been. That anybody listening, oh, I've never even been to that place. But then there really wasn't one. And the song was so big and so popular that obviously multiple other islands, you know, changed their name to Kokomo after that. <laughs> so they successfully made Fetch a thing. They did. They made Kokomo a thing. <laughs> yes, just like Fetch. Yeah, so Fetch a thing, and that's where you're going to go, I bet. Kokomo. I don't know, because we've both been there already. All right, so you innovated some other stuff last week. So last week was a busy week for Magic the Gathering. I was at the Star City Invitational, not doing very well. and That's weird. <laughs> yeah, real weird. Uh, and while I was out there, your new book dropped, Next Level Deck Building. Yes, Next Level Deck Building. Um, the culmination of a couple years and uh, you know research on of the best deck, over 100 of the best deck builders ever, plus collaborating with you know, all kinds of people yourself included in in researching you know basically my favorite topic in all of magic deck building uh i gotta tell you uh i got my copy on friday though i didn't get to crack it open until monday uh you know like i said i was playing badly in a magic tournament uh over the weekend and i am so jealous uh your book is awesome it's just absolutely staggering uh i i i opened it on monday morning and i couldn't put it down and i just leaf through it. I've been. I, I obviously haven't had the chance to uh, read it through. It's like with 472 pages. Am I, is this the right number? Yeah, uh, something like that. It's oodles and oodles of pages. But I flipped around a lot, and it's funny, and it's beautifully laid out. Uh, it's just. I I just genuinely think that it's a, a very wonderful piece of work, and you know, not denigrating any other magic books. Certainly not next level magic, but it just it really feels like. You leveled yourself up even on this one. It's uh the the quality of the book is it's it's really humbling. I have to say. Well, I don't. Know. Maybe you're just saying that because it passes the control F test. <laughs> it, it certainly passes the control F test. Um, but I mean, I'm being completely serious. The uh, the the breadth of the stuff. I mean, I obviously I'd seen a lot of material before. I mean, let's call a spade a spade. But the uh, the the, the just. Your approach to it, I mean, the, my my gauge for things is to what degree do I want to steal from this? And uh, <laughs> I, I uh, every couple of pages, I found something I just wanted to steal, and I, I I think that you can take that in the in the light that it's given because that's for me. Uh, I, I hope you know reasonably high praise. Well, I'm definitely really proud of it, and proud of how it turned out. Like it's, it, I'm obviously. Uh, so a subject I wanted to uh, to do right, you know, and uh, I mean, it took you long enough. 
Yeah, it took a while to do because we wanted to make sure that it did it right. And kind of part of it was the ferret uh, when he was editing, and he just kept suggesting more, you know, like more areas to touch on because we wanted to make sure we covered everything, every single deck, every deck builder, every element of deck building, everything. This is supposed to be the comprehensive, complete history, uh, every element of, uh, every skill that goes into, everything I know about deck building. Which apparently turns out to be 472 pages. 472 very good pages. And it's funny. I think uh, I think that's an Life's underrated funny. thing. Excuse me? Life's funny. And a lot of lots of times in talking about deck building, you just kind of end up talking about uh, like, deck building kind of ties into life a fair bit. And uh, and I think you're right. Life is funny, and as a result, um, it ended up being a lot of fun writing next level deck building. Like there was a lot of a lot of funny moments, a lot of funny things come across. You know, a lot of funny stories. So, um, speaking of of things being funny, what's your favorite thing out of like next level deck building that you thought was uh, kind of a humorous story? See, I don't know. This is this is dangerous, dude. It's nothing but nonstop spoilers here on on your podcast, isn't it? I mean, the phone call between me and you about Saito is—it's just like I remember it, but like in real life. But I just like—I I don't know who laid that out. Like some designer at Star City, right? Yeah, so uh, the, it, the graphic design, yeah, just, uh, I think, adds a lot to that conversation. It's just utterly ridiculous. Like, there's these cartoon telephone cords. <laughs> and, I mean, you picked the most effeminate possible picture of me to be, like, my avatar throughout the book. So, <laughs> so I'm like this dandy. Like, every time there's my picture of the book, she's like, Hello, it's me, Michael J. Patrick, would you like to talk about deck building? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like the straight man character. You're like, oh, oh yes. Let's talk very seriously about deck building. Let's talk about Saito's work. You know, actually, the the thing that struck me about it is, you know, go, going through the book, I feel like I've given Saito a, a raw deal in in some uh, in some cases. Like I talked about it in a podcast. Like my last top decks, I wrote about about like not voting for Saito. The the, the the scene that we're talking about in Next Level Deck Building is about me pulling my vote for him for top 10 deck builders of all time. <laughs> but I actually, I have a massive amount of respect for Saito, and I, I think that that uh, sometimes gets lost in the fact that every time I have the opportunity to vote for him for something I don't. Um, I, I rate him very highly. Especially right now, as a deck designer, I think he's really, 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 really spectacular. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it it it's also tough because it's one of those things where he gets held to a much higher standard because of how famous he is and how successful he's been, where um, he definitely gets made an example of and people uh, want to throw the book at and, and be harsh towards um, because he is one of the best players and best deck builders of all time. But uh, he, he loves magic so much. I know that uh, um, it means a lot to him, and I'm hoping that that the uh, the next couple of years we see a uh, uh, a little bit uh, we see more of certain sides and a little bit less of others, you know. Yeah, I think for me it's it's real tough though. How much has the guy got to do to basically earn up 
uh, a Hall of Fame resume from the position where the community at large has said we're not willing to give you a Hall of Fame resume given these statistics from the last 10 years. So it, it isn't like that at all. It's not about earning it. It's not about um, it's not about doing something so that you can be in exchange receive the Hall of Fame. It's not like that at all. You forget about the Hall of Fame. You wash that aside. You like that's that's done with. You just be an honorable player, a good human being, a positive force in the community. You just be the kind of person that you know you can be. And let the chips fall where they may. Stop worrying about. And I don't think he's even one of the people who's do, who's worrying about all this stuff. There's so many other people who are wondering about. Oh, what does it take? What? I think you got to just set like for him personally. Anyway, I think that uh, he just wants to set that aside and uh, and be part of the community and be positive for its own merits, not to try to get an award. Because let me tell you, at the end of the day, that award it doesn't really mean anything if you don't believe, like if it doesn't have the same meaning behind it like yes there are invites to all the pro tours or whatever but i mean saito certainly not having any difficulty qualifying for pro tours but like um it is about what it means and if you just get it by uh, uh, by accomplishing certain tasks in exchange for that, it has different meaning than if you are just being praised by the community for your for the actions that you were doing anyway. But I don't know. Maybe that's just my own bias. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting that you you couch it in those terms. I have a good friend. Uh, you might know him, who uh, was recently inducted in the Magic uh, Pro Tour Hall of Fame, and he said it was the greatest accomplishment of his life. Also, there's a picture of him in the end of his book holding up his ring saying that. Uh, so, so, I don't know. You might know the guy. Yeah, he's... Uh, uh, you definitely give him a hard time, but he's a tough guy. He can take it. Um, so, why don't you talk about a little bit about Next Level Deck Building, you know, the structure of it, what, what makes it different from Next Level Magic or other books, etc. You know, give give people a you know little appetite wetter. Maybe they haven't been at Star City Games every day this week with uh, each of the little Easter eggs you've been dropping. Yeah, I mean, I definitely recommend people check out uh, on the select side of SCG. Um, they've had uh, there's you know previews and snippets and additional content about the uh, about next level deck building and just showing some of showing some of it because there's a uh, there's it definitely has leveled up, so to speak, uh, over Next Level Magic in some areas. Like it's, I mean, it's absolutely beautiful the layout, and there's obviously there's a lot more um, usable graphs and charts, and uh, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the layout just real useful and just real nice, you know, really easy on the eye. But outside of that, the material itself, Next Level deck building is, uh, as I said, A to Z, everything about deck building. Um, it it's got uh, everything you like. So there's 16 major archetypes in Magic, and Next Level Deck Building breaks them all down and has a training course on every single one that shows the history of them, every successful version in the past, as well as how to build these decks and how to beat these decks and uh, when these decks are going to be good and when they're not, like how to know, and just understanding all of them and how they all tie together, how they all blend together. And 
It covers a um, how to build a mana base, which I think you could write a book on mana bases itself. And I think that how to build a mana base is one of those subjects that people ask for over and over and over again. And nobody ever really does justice to in an article. I mean, people give like a little bit of, you know, little guidelines here and there. But next level deck building has enough room to actually cover the subject at length and let's step by step show you how to be able to make a mana base. Let me just works. interrupt you for a sec. One of the most telling interactions I actually ever had with you. So like a few years ago, um, you were working on a standard five color control deck with like vivids and reflecting pools and so on. I mean, does this sound familiar? You might like to play that kind of deck sometimes. Uh, once or twice. So I'm I'm working on a mana base, and I called you up, and I'm like, well, uh, how many comes into play tap lands is too many, you know? Because back then we could play with everything from savage lands to vivids, etc., and then as well as reflecting pools and filter lands and all all these different kind of lands to fix our mana bases. And I was like, well, how how many uh, come into play tap lands is too many? And you said this awesome thing. Remember what you said? Yeah, that it doesn't matter. Yes, yeah. there's no. It's not about how many comes into play tap lands you play, it's about how many comes into play untapped lands you play. Yeah, and was... as long as you play, you know, as long as you play uh, 14 comes into play untapped lands for the purposes of these kind of control decks. Like, if you want to play two lands that come into play untapped in the first four or five turns of the game, then if you play 14 comes into play untapped lands, you can play as many comes into play tap lands as you want. I was just like, whoa. That was like the smartest thing anyone ever told me about uh, about making mana bases. And now I've shared that with all of Canada. So I don't know if you knew this. I don't know how closely you follow the podcast, but we're in Canada now. Dude, isn't Canada great? I'm practically in Canada now. Oh, you are practically in Canada now. So you moved uh, from Michigan to uh, to Denver. Yes, I don't even so much mean that. I just meant the fact that I went to Canada earlier this year for the first time in a while, and my spirit remains. Your spirit like, what, poutine, maple syrup, skiing? What's your spirit got up there? Uh, uh, the fact that they let me in. <laughs> I don't know, that's about it. Well, I don't think we need to go down that particular rabbit hole on this particular podcast, unless you really want to. So, uh, mana bases, basically, at the end of the day, it's a subject that, it, it's a very uh, it's a very broad subject, but next level deck building breaks it down in a real simple and easy to follow way, so that people can make deck build, but deck ba- mana bases themselves, instead of always writing 24 land at the bottom of their deck list, and then just... Taking a guess when it comes time for the tournament. You know, Jeff Cunningham and Brian Kibler, you know, notorious for playing 24 uh, City of Brass that don't damage you in playtesting, yeah? Uh, I mean, not anymore. That was like a long time ago. Yeah, no, Brian Kibler doesn't run that anymore. Brian Kibler. Yeah, people used to do that a lot more, and. Um, I think that that's kind of one of those shortcuts. And sometimes it still comes up where if you're trying to do like some kind of a crazy combo deck and there's lots of mana fixing and so on, sometimes you're not trying to test the mana base and you just believe that you can probably make the mana. If there's a good chance you can make the mana work later, you just want to find out if the deck works at all. Sometimes you save time by just letting your land, like just letting your lands cheat. But um, most of the time, I mean, to be honest, most of the time, Brian just has two boxes. One of them is the junk 
mana base, and one of them is the Naya mana base. And he just, before, the, you know, before he builds a deck, he starts by picking which of the two boxes he's going to use. What are you rustling? What is that? Are you eating sandwiches? Dude, I'm laying in bed resting. I have a broken ribcage. Don't mess with Patrick Sullivan. Dude, I blocked one too many of his shots. <laughs> and he, uh, he took it out on me by falling on me. All right. Uh, other areas of the book um, cover history of all the decks, as I told you. Like every, uh, you know, also just the deck builders. Like every deck builder all the way back, like, you know, Brian Weissman, all the way up to today, like Sam Black or whatever. And uh, there's a, a breakdown of each element of deck building, like sideboarding, how to build a sideboard, um, and uh, how to choose how many of each card to use in your deck and how to, you know, and, and understanding probabilities and understanding uh, what kind of threats to use and what kind of reactive cards to use and when to use reactive cards at all. It's like, you know, I mean, Z V is the champion of no mana, uh, no no reactive cards in in, uh, in his decks. Yeah, I don't like reactive cards either. Sometimes you got to play them, though. Sometimes. Sometimes you got to play 30 of them. That's not true. Sometimes you got to play 30 cards that draw a card. And uh, and then, like, a few reactive cards and an Aether one. Yeah, I don't know if you saw this on Twitter today, so th- we might be dating the podcast a little bit. It's Thursday, yeah? We're Finkel, like, going off about how not controlling modern control decks are. This is a control deck. He's, like, linking to these decks that could only win with a Gaia's Blessing from 1997. This is a control <laughs> deck. This is a counterpost. Um, yeah, Finkel... Finkel. They used to make a different kind of deck. You know, they used to make decks that people like Kunio and myself were, uh, you know, people like Wakotapa. Nowadays, there's a lot more uh, decks for people like Brian Kibler and uh, Jamie Wakefield. Jamie Wakefield, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> but no, you know, I mean, I don't know. Finkel's definitely a giant magic hipster. I mean... God bless <laughs> I think he took, like, the old man pills today. Like, in my day, we had counterpost. When I was your age, we used to build our mana bases with our victory conditions in them. Just Keldor and Outpost, and somebody points out, dude, Nathalia Drownyard is a card. And, uh, you know, Finkel's first, uh, he, his first Pro Tour Top 8, he's so proud of it. The only blue card he played in main deck or sideboard, you know what it was? Uh, brainstorm? Counterspell. Oh, counterspell. The only blue card played was a double blue. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. That's right. You're talking about for his prison deck? Yeah, yeah. That's his first personal topic. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I was counting his, uh, the junior stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're talking, yeah, Chicago with the transformational sideboard? Yep. That one was nice. First yeah. great transformational sideboard. Yeah, the juniors deck, I guess he doesn't really count as, as being a Pro Tour Top 8. You count your juniors as a Pro Tour Top 8, right, Dallas? No, that would, no, that would give me five. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I mean... It, it, uh, once you get to a certain point, you don't have to count them anymore, but you do remind people every once in a while. That you have yeah, it. Just remember, during the first year of the Pro Tour, the adults were playing stuff like uh, Lava Tubes. No, you know, not, not not naming any names. Chris Pacula. But the adults were playing lava tubes, whereas you know the junior division was playing. I got an idea. Why don't we just play demonic consultation in our Necropones decks? The adults didn't really have that kind of stuff. Chris yelled at me for playing demonic consultation in my deck. Um, we played more or less the same deck. He had a lava tubes. I had a demonic consultation. 
course, he went top four, and I finished 134. Yeah, because he played in the junior division. Uh, I mean, the adult division. I also played in the adult division. Yeah, but you're also... Not, not as good as either. You're the player as Chris. What? <laughs> uh, wait, no, no, no. Uh, that was during Chris's prime. That was back when uh, Pakula top aided back to back pro yep. tours, right? That was the second of his back to back. Yeah. People, yeah, I don't know. I people just don't realize. Junior, in the junior division, the junior division uh, that year was like Finkel, Zvi, Kai, myself, Kibler. Uh, I mean, the junior division was not bad. Oh, the junior division was much better. Steve OMS. Um. It was uh, it was very very stacked. The the my first pro tour, John chose to play in the senior division, even though he was qualified for juniors. He played a blue red control deck with what's the what's the uh four drop red creature that's three three prot white. Wildfire emissary. No no no. Three three, three prot white. Mountain walk. Oh, mountain yeti. Yeah, he played mountain yeti in his deck. It was an interesting choice. He played one white card. Any guess? Uh, balance? Correct. Yeah, balance was a pretty good one. I, I still have uh, flashbacks to that tournament. That was in Dallas. Uh, Dallas. Yeah, yeah in Dallas, uh, Baca top-decked balance against me. In the top eight? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I had to beat every different which way. My creatures had him dead on board. My my lands, because Mistress Factory had him dead on board. Plus the cards in my hand had him dead, because I had enough burn to kill him as soon as I untap. And uh, he only had one card in his hand. And he draws, and immediately, the the next room over, where all the fan, like, where everybody watching, where everybody's watching on TV, it goes, oh! They're just going crazy. That's like, oh, shoot. Did he have a Zorb? He, no, not in play. He just had one card in his hand, and obviously it was Zernor. Wow. Boom, Zernor balance. GG. Would you rather play against Zernor balance or like play against Nyablitz today? Which one's more miserable? Playing against Nyablitz isn't miserable at all. It's a very enjoyable experience. I don't know. I guess a lot of people complain about Nyablitz because they do things like play a bunch of creatures, and then sometimes like a bunch of Frogmites looks really good. But I love playing against Naya Blitz. The last last standard deck, uh, last standard tournament I played in was I played with a Grixis deck that had four Pillar of Flames, um, like ten two cost removal spells after sideboarding, and rolling Tembler, uh, Barter and Blood. I mean, I would mess up a Naya Blitz player. Yeah, I, I don't think Naya Blitz is particularly hard to beat. In fact, I I hate playing Naya Blitz because there's just commonly played cards like. Boros Reckoner they can never beat. Um, and But it's just, to me, I, I find it to be not enjoyable for, that it exists. Like, it, it puts a weird wall in the metagame, and, you know, there's these just outlier burning tree draws. I, I don't know. It's my opinion. I, I don't like so, it. So, I don't existence. know. I mean, I personally, I personally don't mind playing against all that stuff. Although I would rather play against Nia Blitz than Balance Zernor. Balance Zernor just contributes an awful lot to non-games. That's fair. I mean, Although I think Burning Tree contributes a lot to non-games. Yeah. Um, I actually, I, I was having this conversation with uh, Josh Rabbits last week, actually. I, I wouldn't mind if we came back to Titan Magic. I think that would slow down Standard a lot and 
I, I really prefer Titan Magic to uh, to the current crop of medium fatty creatures. I don't know. There's just an awful lot of junk. Like, ten different colors of junk these days. I mean, it's not that hard to beat. Um, I don't know. I just, I find standard to be somewhat random right now. Uh, is that because everybody just draws whatever card they draw for the draw phase instead of preordaining? Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm finding it more and more distant how good your predictions of the metagame can be, how good your play is, how good your execution, how good your metagaming is, and how good your performances are. I, I think these things are, have become increasingly distant and standard. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I know that it, I'm looking forward to a Thrag Tusk rotating out. You're not a fan? Uh, don't get me wrong. It's okay. I just... A bunch of this stuff kind of is old. Like, I'm definitely ready for some new puzzles. This past year has been a reasonable format. It's just... Um, a lot of the decks aren't that different from each other. You know? Like, there's a lot of... There's so many different types of decks possible in Magic. And... Uh, the types of decks that have been good over the past uh, the past year have not been that diverse. So I, I, I guess I just am looking forward to a like for instance, I would like if there wasn't Thrag Tusk, so that the aggressive decks weren't costed so aggressively, so that they could beat a Thrag Tusk. And I'm looking forward to there being no Sphinx's Revelation eventually, so that the other blue cards aren't costed so harshly because of the fact that Sphinx's Revelation exists. You know? Just stuff like that. Fair enough. So, Patrick, I, I went out on Twitter and I asked people if they had any questions for you. You want to you wanna answer some of the questions? Nope. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Let's do this. Okay. All right. Oh, this is actually something... You and I, uh, the first two questions are pretty similar. It's something that you and I have talked about a lot. I think it might be interesting for people to, to uh, hear some, some feedback on this. Why the official Miser's Guide and Next Level Deck Building are both $37 exactly? Where does the number come from? And then the next one's like, where he pulled the number $37 for an ebook from? I don't know. That's what, I mean, that's what... Uh... The official miser's guide costs, right? It is what the official no. miser's guide costs. Yeah, no, because I mean that was just the price of. I mean, part of it is that next level magic is, you know, we're selling that for thirty-seven. But um, people, you know, some people, I think the real question is just asking, you know, why isn't next level magic for sale for two dollars or whatever? And next level deck building, why isn't that? You know, if you're gonna, even if you're gonna charge more, just because, you know, like obviously collaborate with ten people and a huge amount of work went into it. Including over the past ten year or the past two years, why why not charge ten dollars or whatever? And it's like, well, I mean, spent two years. Like first, there's two sides of it. One is the what did it take to actually make it? Well, it took two years of my life and a lot of work with ten other people, and uh, it is a niche market. There are, I mean, it'd be nice if a million people were uh, reading magic books and so on, but. Um, it takes a lot, and it's a 472-page book that that uh, is professionally constructed and and that are poured you know so much into. So it definitely has taken a huge amount of time and a lot of resources and a lot of people's time and energy. But then the other side of it is the value there. Is it is it worth thirty seven dollars? 
And I mean, obviously, that's like that's one of those things where if you have to even ask, like how far, like how far off, how far is your perspective from looking at it just compared to, well, let's put it this way: reading Pride and Prejudice isn't going to win you any Magic tournaments, you know, and next level deck building. If you win just one more FNM, you've already made a profit, right? Like ever, and you still have all that information, and it's super fun and to read, and it's like you have all of that for the rest of your life, and you can read it again and again, right? So, if you if you use the information in it, it's you you see an incredible return on your money. Just because, I mean, whether it's identifying cards, like, for instance, there's an entire chapter about how to evaluate cards, you know, how to be able to avoid, you know, pre-ordering cards that are going to crash in value and how to pick the cards that are going to go up and how to uh, how to know which cards people haven't fully used yet. And um, it doesn't take a ton to recoup a $37 investment. So um, the value is there by far. I mean, there are... How many magic books are there out there? You know, and I don't know. Between the two of us, we wrote half of them, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and well, the, the point being that each one has such a powerful ability to give results to you that um, in, it it blows my mind the people who don't want to invest anything in themselves, and then they're surprised when they don't see any results. But as for as for the cost of actually constructing it. Um, it was there was a lot more that went into the making of this than just ne- than next level magic. I mean, obviously, worked with a lot of other people, a lot of graphic design stuff. Uh, it's a lot more content. I mean, it's just a much bigger book, and uh, and I'm really proud of the way it turned out. And uh, you should be. It's outstanding. Like I said before, it's I, I I'm so jealous. Like just cracking open it. You did such a good job. The voice you use, the writing is. I, I hate to say that it's different than your other writing because I don't want to denigrate your other writing and because it's still you, but it's really a different voice than the one that you use on Star City, and it's a very good voice for the, uh, for the, uh, the I think, the, the tone and the message you're trying to get in this book. Well, I definitely appreciate the kind words. Um, I really enjoyed writing it, and I think it turned out pretty awesome. And at the end of the day, I mean, obviously, uh, the Internet exists. You know, people could just... Uh, can go bootleg a copy or whatever. If they're gonna, people are going to do whatever they're going to do, they're not going to get the same thing out of it just because you know it won't mean the same thing to them. But it also, when you're not out there supporting uh, magic media getting made, then uh, don't be surprised if they're you know like I mean that's that is supporting magic media getting made is how you arrange for there to be more magic media made, right? Because at this point, next level deck building's already been written, right? Like it's already over with. And uh, if people go out and support it, that's like the, the entire reason I wrote Next Level Deck Building was able to was because so many people came out and supported Next Level Magic. And it just was very humbling, very awesome and inspiring. And that's what made me want to go out and make Next Level Deck Building. So The other thing is that if you, uh, if you do like a two by two matrix, you can say, you know, maybe these products aren't for everyone, right? I think that that's a fair statement as well. You know, like you said before, there's going to be people whose threshold is different than others, and there have been people who are interested in investing $37 in this case to uh, possibly level up their game. Um, you know, you probably haven't been getting these emails yet because your book is so new, but it, 
it's moving to me as a writer, you know, of also a $37 uh, ebook that's, that's out in Star City when, when somebody makes top eight of a Grand Prix, right? And they say, I wouldn't have made top eight of this Grand Prix uh, if I hadn't bought your book, of, of which there have been actually, a couple actually, of people. You receive a number of those about Next Level Magic, like uh, people qualifying for the national championships and uh, somebody making a national team and uh, somebody, like a number of people qualifying for the Pro Tour for the first time. Yeah. Um, crediting the uh, the change, like crediting all the things they learned from Next Level Magic. And that's that's awesome. That's something that... that um, it really makes. I mean, because I could do a lot of other things, you know, with my time. But see, some. I know that getting on the pro tour meant the world to me. And when I see somebody else who was able to reach, you know, reach that, you know, reach that dream, being able to have been a part of that, being able to have been a help, is a is really awesome. Yeah, first time PTQ winners is just touching. Like. It's so touching, especially when people use like the scissors analogy, which you did such a good job with the scissors analogy and and next level deck building. And like, oh yeah, yeah, I saw I saw what was going on. I predicted the metagame correctly, and I was going to be scissors, you know. And it was it's just awesome. I, I think, like you said before, there there are two sides to it. One side is you know what did it what did it cost me to put this together? Me and my collaborators, right? And then the other side is you know yeah, two years. And lots of time and energy. And, uh, but that's the side. Yeah, I mean, I think this is how, you know, take this however you want. This is how, uh, how, how you create wealth or how you get rich, right? And it's, it's this thing where, like, well, what am I make this thing? And what's the average value of this thing that I'm making, right? And I'm, the internet is wonderful because it allows us to disseminate this with, with, uh, with great power to thousands and thousands of people. And I make this thing. That's worth five hundred dollars to anyone who gets it, right? But I only charge them thirty-seven dollars. That's actually kind of this amazing, this amazing commerce that can happen uh, uh, amongst people, and um, I, I think that that that's a perspective that that some people don't look at, uh, where where they kind of balk at this price. And I can tell you, I mean, certainly from my perspective, if I. I mean, it's just worth thirty-seven dollars. What else to tell you? It's really good. It's worth that to me. Um, Dude, I bet you would pay more than thirty-seven dollars for any document containing that, that passes the control F test. Um, there are a lot of things that pass the control F test. Let's let's be fair. <laughs> okay. uh, what's, it, what's question number two? All right, those are questions one and two. Okay. Thoughts on new Chandra and Garuk, please. Uh, yeah, feels good, man. Obviously, the new Garuk, uh, as predicted, already uh, already achieving success by cheating uh, Crater Hoof Behemoth into play. Yep. Um, that guy's just real good. He's going to require you to build around him a bit, obviously, but he's going to be he's going to have his purposes uh, throughout his lifespan and be a uh, just a good constructed card, you know. He's not the type of card you throw in a deck, but if you're building around him, he's often the best card in whatever deck he's in. I under uh, underrated him initially, and I, I watched uh, Huey play obviously a lot uh, with that deck. Obviously, he made um, second place in the most recent Standard Open with Colonian Hydras that uh, um, I errantly purchased at the at the full price. But 
The thing that's striking about it is he didn't have to commit because he had the Garuk. He could just keep leveling up the Garuk, and if at any point his opponent just did something to sweep his board or destroy his Garuk, kill all of his creatures, he always had seven cards in hand. It was a... I, I think that you have to play against this to realize how devastating that, that card can be, especially against the control decks um, uh, in, in a properly constructed deck. Like you said, you kind of have to build around it, but I mean, if it's hitting four cards out of five, which, which it often does, it... If it's hitting two cards, you still are plussing and drawing multiple cards. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's powerful. Absolutely. As for Chandra, uh, she's definitely good, too. There's a lot of competition at the four spot for uh, aggressive red strategies these days. Um, I know Brian Kibler mentioned the deck that he played at the uh, World Championships. He played uh, uh, that War Chant, the four-cost red-green card, mm-hmm. in his sideboard, and he says in retrospect he wishes he had played Chandra instead. Um, I think it's it's a good card that it'll probably see even more play once Hellrider rotates out. But, um, yeah, it's also a good card. It's, it, it's, it's, a, I think it's one of those cards that's suffering a little bit from the fact that it's a different kind of good than, than people are used to. Like it's, you know, what, like when was the last time there was a planeswalker that was red that just drew cards, you know, or something that just draws cards that you can't, that doesn't work with counter spells. So I think it's going to take people a little bit of time to figure out how to optimize it, how to use it best. But it, I think that both of them are going to be good. Besides, with Chandra, you know it's going to be good because of the fact that um, she's the uh, she's the centerpiece of their mar- their marketing campaign for the next year. <laughs> you, know, you don't know for sure, but you you know that they certainly intended for her to be good because, uh, like in the past, every other year that they've made somebody the center, they've turned out to be good. So my guess is that uh, she'll be good, you know. I think she's good. Um, let's see here. What's your favorite non-magic game? What is my favorite non-magic game? Yep. Um, let's see. Basketball is kind of rough <laughs> if you uh, sustain enough injuries. It, only if you play against Patrick Sullivan, apparently. Uh, I guess League of Legends. You play a lot of that? Uh, some. I mean, I don't have time to play too many games of anything, but uh, definitely play, uh, uh, like, there's lots of people. Like, there's, you know, Magic players and then uh, co-workers and just lots of different people. It's, uh, it's a fun team game, you know? Here's a weird question. What is your opinion on the view that 10 Things I Hate About You is my favorite film? Is that even true? No. I didn't think so. <laughs> it's not true. So I guess, what is my, what is my opinion on yeah. the view yeah. of that? Well, I would, my opinion is that it sounds uh, inaccurate. Yeah. Um, I'm, not, I'm not much one to trifle with inaccuracies. It's kind of an odd question. Let's see. Uh, oh, here's this. This is one that uh, I think hits uh, straight to the truth, the heart, and the stomach. Why do you love chicken so much? Why do you love anything? I mean, like love is all there is, and uh, chicken just happens to be a part of what is that is very close to my soul. 
No, why do I love fried chicken? Not just shit fried chicken, but chicken at all. Um, uh, it, my, it gives my body everything it needs. Like, I just, I run the fried chicken diet, which is to say that I just eat whatever it is my body tells me to eat. And I find out that, that, like, I've found that that works extremely well. My body doesn't want to eat a whole bunch of candy. And my body doesn't want to, you know, just, like, there's a lot of stuff that you could eat. But mostly my body just wants to eat a lot of meat and then, like, fruits and vegetables and not really that into bread. Kind of is like candy. But um, a small amount can be okay. But, uh... I think that people have a lot more control over their metabolism than they might give credit to. And so, like, it's easy for people to be like, oh, you can only eat fried chicken several times a day because you're this ridiculous outlier genetically or whatever. And it's like, I don't know about that. I think also there's some amount of, if you just listen to what your body really needs, I think an awful lot of people don't listen to what their body needs. They listen to, they, they, they just try to feel pleasure. And, uh, and there's a big difference between happiness and pleasure. And when we confuse those things, it can be easy to think that what we want is to, you know, to the taste of something in our mouth or the, uh, the short-term satisfaction of eating a bag of candy at 3 p.m. or whatever. But uh, I just like chicken because it, I eat it several times a day and it makes me feel good. I don't like food that much to begin with. And so if there's a food that is reliable that I'm able to eat several times a day, for years and years and years and years and years and years, and it leads to results I really like, you know, never getting sick and always being in great health and being strong and fit and feeling good, then uh, I'm definitely very happy that chicken continues to deliver, you know? I'm also, more than that, though, I'm happy that a bunch of humans went to the trouble of finding the best chickens and, you know, having them reproduce a whole bunch so that I can be eating them. There are a lot of different chickens in the world than the one we eat, but the one we eat is definitely optimized for, well, for me anyway. For eating. Yeah. Here's one. Sounds like somebody uh, knows a bit about you. Do you still design your own sets? Yeah. Yeah. Once in a while. I like, I mean, I, I love doing magic design type stuff, you know, like I love making up magic sets and I love making up magic cards and magic design ideas and still like to just bounce ideas off of other players, off of R&D members, off of anybody who will listen, you know? Love it quite a bit. Alright, last one from this set. What are the decks you most worked on and tried to make work but never ended up being good enough? Uh, like a deck that like something that I really wanted to work and it never ended up being good enough. Yeah. Let's see. Um, it's tough to differentiate between because there's been so many different formats and you kind of just cycle through stuff. And what it means to not be good enough is weird because sometimes stuff can be good enough for one weekend and then turn out to be bad like a week later. Um, so something that never even had that first chance, but I kept wanting it to be good. Uh, dude, I don't know. It's like, I have, like, can you hear it? Yeah. Can we hear my nominee? Okay. What are your nominees? 
Beacon of Immortality, Reign of Gore. Uh, I guess. We didn't keep working on that, working on it, working on it. I mean, it just didn't work. (laughs) I was sure it worked. I, I mean, that's that was the first one that came to my mind too. But I, I, I thought that we were. I kind of took from the question that it was something that I kept trying to make work, and each time it doesn't work. Um, I know that I've built dredge for every format, like built dredge every single time for modern and for uh, you know, and uh, haven't played it yet. Been close a couple times, but. Haven't played it yet. Um, when are you ever going to play it when Grixis is available? I don't know. I, didn't, I played Jund at the last Modern PT. Well, I mean, if you're not at least 25% Brew, you have no heart, but if you're not at least 25% Net Deck, you have no brain. Well, I should have played Grixis. <laughs> Got a lot of heart. <laughs> Lots of heart. Nah, I should have played blue-white-red. Blue-white-red control is so good right now. In modern? Yeah. Like, Sphinx's Revelation is just... It's pretty sweet with cards like Spell Snare and Lightning Bolt and all that business. I mean, the enemy now is Birthing Pod, right? Is it pretty easy to disrupt that deck? Uh, I, I really like the Birthing Pod matchup with blue-white-red. Um, I played against it some at the, uh, at the Grand Prix and beat it every time very easily. Uh, Birthing Pod can be very effective against the blue-white-red decks that have creatures in them. But the blue-white-red Waffle Tapa style that I play, uh, you just beat up on Birthing Pod. It's like pretty hardcore. All card drawing and removals. Yeah. And counter spells. Yeah, you just punish them. So what's what, next? what else you got for me? What's next for you? What's, uh, what's on deck, Pat? Uh, doing commentary at the SCG Open in Salt Lake City. Um, I guess best thing is the date, like August 9th, 9th, 10th, whatever that weekend is. Mm-hmm. Um, Who's your co-host, so, Cedric? Uh, I don't know. Feels like I should know. Uh, let's see. It is... Uh, who knows? Let's see. This is probably pretty entertaining. Uh... Oh, it's entertaining. Oh, here it is. Matthias Hunt. Matthias. I, I commentated with him uh, at Grand Prix Charleston, which at the time was the biggest Grand Prix ever, but then was immediately just shattered by Las Vegas. Yeah, basically. Yeah, Magic's doing okay. Yeah, Magic is... Magic is the nut. It's only one Magic. Yeah. Well, a lot of games that kind of kind of look like magic, but that's only natural. Any sufficiently advanced TCG is indistinguishable from magic. <laughs> For me, there's only magic. Although I play a lot of Street Fighter. Even now? Yeah, I mean, I I just play on iOS. I play a lot there. Probably play like more than ten hours a week. Jeez. Yeah. Remember you, you remember you made me take uh, Bejeweled off my phone because I hadn't finished my book? Yeah. Uh, and you're like, you have too many leaks. Take Bejeweled off. Take Bejeweled yeah. off. But, have yeah. you played Bejeweled since then? No. 
Good for you. I mean, I did a lot of things, I think, over the last couple of years that you didn't think that I would be able to do. But maybe that, maybe you thought I could do it, and then you just, like, said some provocative thing uh, to, like, oh, I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm just going to take Bejeweled off all my devices, uh, which I did. I was playing too much Bejeweled, and I'm not getting any, anything out of it. You actually, I actually feel like I get a lot of, out of playing Street Fighter. Like, I feel like I'm still getting better. I feel like, you know, I can accomplish things and somewhat social. Uh, but Bejeweled, you know, not really the case. Uh, and then also, you told me you didn't think it was in my range to vote for less than uh, five people for the Hall of Fame, and I voted for only four this year. Well, all I know is that uh, a couple people didn't vote for Louise, and if just a few more people had voted for Pakula, it'd be a different story. Yeah, well, I think he only needed four votes. I mean, I voted for him. But yeah, I mean, my next vote would have gone to Efro, who... Uh, got 5% of the vote out of the selection committee, so it's it's not like I, I daggered him in any way. I can't believe Herbert Hall's got, like, what was it, like, 6.7% or whatever? Six and something? Like, how did Herbert Hall's only get 6% of the vote? I mean, it's you, that, only have, you only have five that's votes. That's insanity to me. I mean, I He think... got a third as many votes as Saito. Well... Uh, I don't know. I think I think the votes are going to be very, very different next year. Um, I think Chris has spent years splintering old school American votes, right? So here's like Chris, Justin, and and Steve-O all kind of like daggered each other for votes, and Huey too. Yeah, you know, Huey's in. Chris is off. So um, yeah, the American ballot is going to be completely different. Wide open. Although, it's, it's funny that people, you know, everybody's like, oh my god. Not everybody. A few people are like, oh my god, these American-centric ballots. What is it? Oh my, I mean, what's the deal? Oh, what do you know? The three people who got in were Americans, and that includes what the rest of the world voted as well. And if you look at the world championships, the top four, the top four players for the world championships are... And, just, let's be clear, Shahar counts as American. The top four of the world championships, once again, all Americans. He's, he switched to Israeli citizenship so that he could so he could play in this, right? Is that, is that the story? So, the, world, the Magic World Championships is certainly one of the few places on Earth that recognizes Israel as a part of Europe. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess he lives in Israel sometimes, so... And nothing to take away from him, by all means. I mean, obviously, if you're living in Israel, you certainly would rather compete with, uh, you know, the rest of Europe than than America for uh, for eligibility. Not that it matters anyway. He was going to get in anyway, just on pro points. Mm. So it's not for this. He'd get in anyway. I think the place where it ends up being relevant is stuff like the Magic World Cup, you know. Gotcha. The, uh, Shahar's a freaking master anyway, though. I mean, Shahar is... Shahar is uh, how many Grand Prix has he won now? He's up to three so far? You do not just win three Grand Prix, incidentally, by the time you're 19. <laughs> yeah, he's got some talent. Yeah, he's an awesome dude. The, um, the thing about the American-centric ballots, though, I, I don't even understand how that's a criticism. But... Who was criticizing a few years ago when year after year after year was just like two or three euros every year, you know, like the, the with no Americans getting in? I mean, I, I don't think there were a whole lot of Americans whining about that. 
I definitely enjoyed, like, Paul Rietzel's commentary on Kai's ballot. Oh, classic American bias. <laughs> because Kai only voted for Americans this year. Yeah. I mean, Americans were good on this ballot. Yeah, I mean... Uh, there's a lot of reverse, uh, like, a lot of desire among some people for reverse discrimination. And uh, it doesn't matter. There'll be a completely different discussion next year. It, it's going to be way different next year. Shouta no and Yuza each top eight, one more pro tour. And uh, yeah. Wafo will be back. We'll see. We'll see what next year looks like. I read some commentary on, you know, some reasonably reputable websites, including from people who actually have votes. And I think that a lot of the, a lot of the garbage um, conversation comes from people who, A, don't understand what the Pro Tour Hall of Fame is, and B, have no standing in the discussion to begin with. But the, but I think that people fundamentally don't understand the nature of Wafo's ban. They think that, like, Wafo did something, it's equivalent of, you know, doing something wrong in-game. Uh, like, uh, you know, like, uh, Saito, for example, uh, was... Yeah, was Wafo did for. not, like, there are some people who are confused about if Wafo gained an in-game advantage, like, if he was cheating, and he wasn't. And Watsi has actually explicitly said that he was not cheating. And, um, I mean, he was no more cheating than anybody else who's given advanced information to write their preview articles is, you know, like, it, I don't know, it was, it's unfortunate, and I think part of it is that some, uh, some popular voices in the community, popular, you know, spread misinformation right around the time of the ban, that were caught up in kind of the sensationalism of it, and never really clarified, never, uh, rectify things or made things right in any way and as a result there's just a number of people who have uh, misinformed views. Now that said I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with uh, with not voting uh, for somebody for these other things if you believe it calls into question their, their morals their their sportsmanship or their their ethics or, or their fair play or anything else you know by all means I think everybody should vote how they believe um but just to be clear, he wasn't cheating, you know, and that is a like that's a fact and a known thing that Watsi has made clear. But. Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, you know, like I've been saying at least this year quite a bit. You know, I think that voting your conscience is the thing that that every every person who's entrusted with a vote, um, you know, should aspire to do. But if that's the case, and you know, you're gonna you're gonna recognize. Here's a here's where I draw the line, or here's a bias that that you know as a, I as a human being have. I, I would just hope that people at least believe true things um, when they when they uh, when they draw those lines. And it doesn't. I mean, obviously, Wafo did something that warranted a suspension, but I think it's different from a, a general sense that he quote did something wrong that would affect the his play statistics. You know, and I think that a lot of the time when when people are are attacking the cre credibility of a player who maybe has sustained a suspension. I think a big a big part of it is like, well, how good are their play statistics really? Uh, is, is the question. Yeah, well, Papo is one of the coldest who ever did it. Uh, I think he's one of the greatest players um, of all time, one of the best deck builders of all time, and he will be back with a with with some thunder. 
Cool. Well, do you have other stuff you want to talk about? Um, let's see. Uh, no, I guess not a ton at the moment. Going to be uh, going to be in uh, Detroit for an upcoming tournament. Going to be in Salt Lake City for an upcoming tournament. Um, but no, I mean the big thing is just next level deck building, and I cannot stress enough how much uh, anybody who's anybody who either plays in tournaments or builds their own decks. That is, I mean, next level deck building is. It's not just about being able to build decks better yourself, but also in knowing how to be able to beat other people. You know, like how to beat each of the different strategies, how to sideboard against them, how to... And there's a lot of in-game stuff that ends up by necessity going hand-in-hand with deck building. But it's also set up in a way so that even for people who aren't super heavy into the competitive scene, it can be just, you know, if you just love Magic's history, reading a history of every deck that's ever been good and every deck builder and every year of magic theory, like the evolution of all of it. I know I would absolutely love to, uh, to get it. I just in researching the topic, it was just a joy. The more information I was able to find, you know, your 16 archetypes and the categorization that you put into it and how you approach the, the research in that portion is actually just joy. For someone who has been invested in, in the history of the game for a long time, it, it was just absolute utter joy. The the a lot of the things that that it went into the book, obviously, and and when you're reading it, are coming out of the book. Uh, but I actually have a question about it. So today, in 2013, vast majority of successful tournament players pretty much just neck deck. So you know, why would one Wait, of those? That's, that's not even true, though, is it? I, I think the vast majority. Not in the yeah. pro tour. Well, the Pro Tour exists in a time when there might not be net decking because the formats are new. But there are a lot of successful, I mean, big tournaments and so forth. And, you know, the vast majority of them are not the Pro Tour. There's still high-profile tournaments, lots of players and substantial prizes. Right, but so there's, to answer that, there's a lot of tuning that goes on. Because deck building isn't always about building something from scratch. I mean, to begin with, it is very rare that somebody comes up with a completely new concept. You know, even when you're building a, red, a new red aggro deck, there were red aggro decks before. You know, so like the very notion of just coming up with a brand new deck is somewhat overstated, although it does happen. The um, there, it's also very important to be able to tune concepts, and sometimes these are decks that existed in previous formats that just haven't found a home in this new format. Other times, it's people already have successful tournament decks, and you want to figure out how to make it so that it'll be good against next week's metagame. And next level deck building covers that subject extensively, because just like I mean, just as though. Like Eric Lauer, a Stone Cold Masters V, Stone Cold Master, they make brand new decks from scratch and they're awesome. And they invent new strategies. But there's also Jerry Thompson, you know, somebody who is just a master at taking existing strategies and making them even better. And you don't even have to be Jerry Thompson to, to be able to take to gain an advantage from figuring out how to tune decks better, how to make a deck better for your local metagame or for the tournament you're going to play in or for the week you're going to use it. That's a very good answer. But I guess I should uh, should bounce for now. Thank you for having me, man. Oh, thanks for thanks for being on. Um, you know, you did a pretty terrible BDM impression, I got to say. <laughs> yeah, I've, oh, hold on. Let me see if I can fill it in real quick. So, uh, did you see that new comic book? Yeah, Superman is on the cover. <laughs> no, I'm, or maybe I'm just supposed to 
Yeah, you know, just be really excited about it. You know, it's 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 really great. All right, that's enough of that. <laughs> All right, have a good night, man. All right, bye, Patrick. So that was Patrick Chapin. I'm Michael J. Flores, Top Eight Magic. Hope you liked it. A little bit of a change of pace, and as of right now, I don't know if there's a uh, a second half of this podcast with uh, BDM and LSB, but. As a listener, you'll you'll soon find out. Either there'll be closing credits music or a uh, second half of this podcast. But peace out, Michael J.